Well, you know, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and no reason to stop now. We're still in the very beginning of it. We are going to be entering, though, the section of, of Matthew 5 that is probably the most impactful passage of Scripture for me. And I remember 30 years ago when I started to actually put together what Jesus was trying to say in this passage here of the sermon. It changed everything for me. After 12 years of Catholic education, after joining a religious order and following the rules as much as you needed to in that, in that tradition, and then landing in an evangelical church 15 years later and trying to follow those rules, which are big in that tradition, and then to hear what Jesus was trying to tell us about law, how he was trying to redefine our relationship to law. It changed everything for me. So just to recap a little bit, we started with the Beatitudes, right? The first eight Beatitudes. And we talked about that giving us a portrait, a picture of the finished product, a picture of the person who has become kingdom. Because kingdom is not a place. Kingdom is the people who have learned to see with the Father's eyes, to see life in that, with that attitude, with that clarity, to see that unity and connection. So first we start with that portrait. What does it look like? Eight different facets. Then the ninth beatitude, quote-unquote, which probably isn't the beatitude, was changing. It changed, it changed tense. It went from third to second person, talking directly to the people. This is what you are going to experience. This is the effect on you if you actually embark on trying to become this kingdom person. And then we went into salt and light. This is the effect you will have. You are salt and light. This is the effect you will have on the people around you, the individuals, your home, your community. And we talked about how that salt doesn't really mean too much here in the modern era with refrigeration and antibiotics, but that salt was essential to ancient life for preservation, for fertilization, and for vitalization of life. On all counts, salt was absolutely essential. That was the effect that these people are going to have on the people around them. And then light, we looked at light more expansively than just illumination or goodness as we do in the West. But seeing light as the fullness as opposed to darkness, from disorder and chaos to order and unity and harmony, straight lines as opposed to the curling energies, but that it's a complementary relationship, a spectrum between the two, that we need both, that the darkness precedes the light, the darkness is older than the light. If we want to move into the enlightenment that is promised in kingdom, we first have to descend into the endarkenment, to be willing to sell everything we think we know, all that straight-lined order, controllable stuff, and move into that place of disturbance and curved energies for a time before we can be layered back up into the light. This is what Jesus is telling us, the fullness of it. And the effect that we will have on others is to bring that preservation of life, to bring that fertilization of new life, to bring vitality to life, and to bring the order and the harmony and the sense of unity and connection. And now he's going to transition again, because having said all that, the burning question in all of your minds, right? How do we do that? How do we move into kingdom? How do we become kingdom? And Jesus is going to start because the first thing that needs to happen is a radical and fundamental shift in worldview, a complete change in worldview. 
We cannot enter kingdom if we're banging on it from the usual way that we approach life, the physical world. If we do that, if we approach it from a legal and literal point of view, which is what we always want to do as human beings, right? We will never be able to crack the nut. We'll never be able to actually move into the space that he's talking about, this quality of life, this attitude toward life. And so under the Pharisees, the people of his day had been indoctrinated for two to three hundred years about law. It had become all about law. There was a shift in Judaism over those two to three hundred years before Jesus comes on the scene. And everything had moved from the, the fluidity, the poetry of the prophets, into increase and increased legalism of the Pharisees, understanding that everything had to be obeyed exactly. In other words, the way to God was by obedience to the law. Now, coincidentally, this system was also the source of the Pharisees' power over the people, you know, not to be overlooked. Because once you make the law so complicated that nobody can understand it anymore, guess what you need? You need lawyers. And the Pharisees were the lawyers. The Pharisees were the ones and the only ones who had a chance at understanding and comprehending the vast scope of the law. And so the people had to go to the Pharisees to find out if they were in or out, if they were acceptable or not, if they were doing the right thing or not. And so the Pharisees had a chokehold on the people's ability to approach their own God. And this is exactly what Jesus was up against. If you take a look at every single one of the confrontations that Jesus has with the Pharisees, you'll find it's always on this exact point. That is not about obedience to the law that brings us into connection with God. We already have that. How do we divest ourselves of all of the incorrect information, all of the faulty belief systems that limit us and keep us from being able to just approach our God, to just be in this space that he's calling kingdom? And so at the rest of chapter 5 now, from where we are and where we're going to go, is Jesus redefining law. And the word he's using there, nomosa, in uh, Aramaic, it means Torah. It, it refers to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible that contain the written law. But it also means instruction or guidance, really more than it means law the way we think of law. It's really the instruction of Moses. It is the guidance of Moses. Not the law of Moses the way we think of it, but it had become that by the time, time Jesus gets on the scene, and it has certainly become that again. A lot, more, a lot sooner than 2021. But we're here. We're still fighting the same thing. We're still fighting this legalistic tendency, this idea that the law saves us, that obedience to the law is what makes us acceptable to God. And Jesus is saying, absolutely not. He is redefining law, and he's redefining the place of law in the lives of the followers, the Talmudim. Now, at the same time, the law is still vitally important, but it's not legally important. Let's take a look. Matthew 5, starting at verse 17. We'll read 17, 18, and 19. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, when he says the law or the prophets, that's code for the entire written canon uh, of the Jews. So the, the, the Hebrew Tanakh, the, the, the Bible, as we would call the Old Testament, is divided into three sections. The law, the Torah, 
the prophets, the Nevi'im, and the writings, the Ketuvim. These three sections. But law and prophets was code for everything, all of the written portions of their tradition. So he says, don't think that I came to abolish that, to revoke the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. All right. So based on what I just said in reading that, well, a little bit of a contradiction there. I mean, it sounds kind of legal, doesn't it? It sounds like Jesus is really pounding the nail in deeper. But we're going to have to get into the Aramaic underpinnings of what he's saying. We can't just read this legally in English, literally in English, and understand where he's going with this. Now, what he says, what Jesus says poetically, because you notice, these are still poetic phrases. He's using still figurative speech. He's still using all the tools of poetry. But what Jesus says poetically, Paul says right out loud, prosaically. Take a look at Romans 10.4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean the law is ended? Or does it mean that the law is fulfilled? What's going on here? Well, the word there in Greek, telos, and the Aramaic word that stands behind it, sake, means consummation. It means the sum of all things, the fulfillment, or even an outcome. So it can be used as the end of something, but in the, the end of something in terms of its consummation, the sum of everything that has gone before, the fulfillment, the outcome, and so what completes a thing, in this case, Jesus Christ, fulfills it, makes it tell us. You see how this is working? Take a look at the uh, contemporary English version. I thought this was really interesting. But Christ makes the law no longer necessary for those who become acceptable to God by faith. I love the first part. Christ, doesn't end, Christ is the end of the law, the fulfillment of the law. Christ literally makes the law no longer necessary by bringing it to completion. For those who become acceptable to God, you know, I would say that we're already acceptable to God. For those who have realized that they're already acceptable to God through faith, through trust, the word faith there can never be separated from both belief and trust. In Greek, and in Aramaic. And so the idea really here, the bottom line is trust, not faith, certainly not the way we think of faith as just mental assent. But for those who trust God, they have come to realize they're already accepted. And the law then is no longer necessary. See how this is starting to, to shape out? This is what Jesus is trying to tell us. Paul is saying it so, more, so much more clearly. Ultimately, the intent of the law is love. Because for Jesus and Paul, obedience to the law is never kingdom. Mere obedience to the law is never kingdom. More rule following is just going to miss the point. This is why the church has such a problem with the Sermon on the Mount. We've been talking about that for 2,000 years. The church hasn't really known what to do with the sermon because the church is continuing to look at it from a legal point of view. 
through a legal lens, through a literal lens. And this is going to create no end of problems. The main points of kingdom that we've talked about is that the kingdom is not legal. The kingdom is relational. The kingdom is not intellectual. It's experiential. And the kingdom is not a future place. It's not a place at all. But it's an attitude or a quality of life right here, right now. Until we start to make these shifts, we're going to miss everything that's going on here. Because kingdom will be inconceivable to any one of us until we finally move beyond mere legal compliance and start to embrace the intent of the law. And the intent of the law is love. The preservation of life. God awareness. When a person has moved into a place where they are aware of God's presence in every moment, then what they do is life-preserving. What they do is life-fertilizing. What they do is life-vitalizing. Salt and light. Everything that salt and light is about starts to happen once we start to become aware of God and God's presence. Take a look at 13, Romans 13.10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of a law. I don't know if you can say it any clearer than that. Even in the NASB, right? Ultimately, the intent of the law is love. Love is the law, if you want to look at it that way. James calls it the law of liberty because he's talking about love as law, liberating us, opening us up instead of restricting us anymore, as love does otherwise, as law does otherwise. Everybody's a critic, right? In the book of Galatians, which if you, how many of you actually have read Galatians? Yeah? It's a pretty angry book, isn't it? <laughs> you got to love it. Paul is upset. He's upset because everything that he's been doing, you could characterize his entire ministry to the Gentiles as a fight with the Jews. <laughs> The Judaizers who said, and if you're going to follow Jesus, then first you have to become a Jew, and you have to follow the dietary laws, and you have to follow purity codes, and you have to be circumcised. And they're saying all this stuff, and Paul is saying, no, that has nothing to do with it. You guys are completely missing the point. Same battle that Jesus is fighting, that it's not about obedience to law and following every code to find out if you're acceptable to God. He's fighting this over and over again. So when he goes to Galatia and he sets up the church and he leaves and he finds out they're falling back for this whole Judaizer position and requiring circumcision and he fires off this angry letter, you know, fighting this exact point. There's a passage in uh, Galatians 5.12 where he says, those who would tell you to get circumcised, you know, may they mutilate themselves. I heard one person put it, I hope the knife slips. I thought that was pretty good. Now, you know, is he talking about actual castration here? Is he talking about what it sounds like? You know, most modern translations translate it exactly that way. You go back a little bit, the commentators are a little squeamish about that. And they said, okay, well, those who are bothering you, the actual word there is to cut off. That means they're going to be excommunicated. They're going to be cut off from the rest. May they be cut off from the rest of the community so they don't bug you anymore. You know, 
Knowing Paul's temperament, I like the first one better myself, because that's Paul. That's his personality. Either way, you get the point. He's really strong about this. He couldn't be stronger about this. And yet, two verses later, what does he say? At Galatians 5.14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He made it even simpler than Jesus did. Jesus said, love God with your whole heart, mind, and soul, and spirit, and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul just brings it down. But even in Jesus' statement, it was understanding that it's one and the same. You can't love God without loving your neighbor, and you can't love your neighbor without loving God. You want to know how much you love God? How you doing? Especially with your political opponents, huh? How you doing? How's your love there for the enemy? That's what Jesus is trying to get across to us. He's trying to say, both of them, both Jesus and Paul, being Jewish, having that heritage, that lineage, following the law, being lawful, is not kingdom. It's not what we're talking about here. There's a place for that, but it's not what we're talking about here. You won't be able to get to kingdom by obeying the law, the code, and you're not going to get present to the Father by obeying the code. In fact, it creates more of a chasm between us. Yet at the same time, the law is not irrelevant. It's still vitally important. As we said, it's just not legally important. Let's go back to Matthew 5.17. and pick Jesus' thread up and break it down a little bit. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So Jesus is not revoking here. He's fulfilling. He's completing the intent all right? Next verse. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. So this is the one that sounds pretty tough to our ears. But take a look what's happening here. First, the smallest, the yod, was the smallest letter, just a little stroke in the Hebrew square script. It would correspond to our letter I, the yod. And the serta, the little horn, was the, the tittle, if you had the jot and the tittle as it's sometimes translated, which was just like a little swash, it was a diacritical mark that, that gave meaning to certain letters. Kind of like the, the little stroke on the O makes it a Q, and a little stroke on the C makes it a G. It would be something like that, just a little stroke, not even a letter itself, but something that adds meaning to letters. Jesus is literally saying not even the smallest strokes scratches on the page you know, are going to be abolished until heaven and earth pass away. Now, pass away. The root word there is abar. Abar can mean pass away, but it literally means to cross a boundary, to go beyond a limit. So for heaven and earth to pass away, Shemaiah and Ara, to pass away is literally for the two of them to cross their boundaries, to go beyond their limits, literally to merge, to become one. Hebrews understood human beings as living between heaven and earth, right? On earth, under heaven. But the idea is our job as human beings was to bring heaven to earth and earth to heaven. In other words, to cause them to pass away as separate entities, to become one in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, in our reality. So until heaven and earth merge and become one, the law, namosa, law, 
which literally means that which strengthens, relieves, that which guides and instructs, shall be in force. So take a look at this paraphrase. Now, this is just my paraphrase, so if you have any problems with it, you can talk to me afterwards. But see if this starts to get it into a different way of looking at this less legally. Until heaven and earth, community and individuality, cross their boundaries and merge into oneness, we will need the instruction and guidance of the law to strengthen us. And not even the smallest part of it will pass away until it has fulfilled its purpose and is no longer needed. You see how that works? It's not our slavish obedience to the law that takes us where we want to go. It's our realization of the actual nature of things, that all these things that seem so separate are really one thing that makes the law unnecessary for us. Because once everything is one to us, love God and do as you please, right? Everything we do will look lawful because we are doing it as if to ourselves. The law is there to make sure nobody gets harmed. That's why Paul said, love doesn't harm anybody. Therefore, it fulfills the law. This is the way this all works. Jesus and Paul are saying the same thing here, trying to get us to understand. The intent of the law is love. Love is the law. This is where we're all going with this. Not irrelevant. At 519... Another one that's going to be hard for us to understand. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And again, this sounds very legal. But what Jesus says is what is going, really going on here. In his time, the Pharisees divided the law into lesser and greater commandments. You know, kind of the mortal and venial sins for any of you who grew up Catholic. Remember that? So they had lesser and greater sins. And the lesser and greater commandments, breaking the lesser ones was just a trivial offense. So it really didn't matter. But what Jesus is saying, that this attitude completely violates the intent of the law. Because it's a thing of the heart. It's an attitude of the heart that the law is trying to put together. And if we are breaking them down, it's like adding legal fig leaves so that we can get away with certain things and this doesn't matter and I can do this, you know, but I better not do that. It's turning everything inside out and back to front. And it leads directly to the main thematic statement that Jesus makes in this passage, the central statement that Jesus makes at Matthew 5.20. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisee, surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but what I need to try to get across to you is that it was absolutely mind-blowing to the Jews. Absolutely mind-blowing. The Pharisees had developed a system where they looked at the Torah, they looked at the first five books, and they extracted out of that those five books 613 commandments. Now, if you were to read those commandments, they wouldn't look like commandments to you at all. They were implied. 
is what the Pharisees and their school over hundreds of years said, okay, this is a commandment, this is a commandment. So they were reading into the text and pulling out 613 commandments, laws. 248 of those were positive actions, mitzvah, that had to be done by the people. And 365 were prohibitions that the people were not supposed to do. And so you have these 613 laws, written laws, as they understood it. How do you keep the people from breaking those important laws, 613 of them? What they did was they created an oral tradition, not written down. They considered them hedges. So they put these unwritten oral traditions, more prohibitions around the written ones so that you had to break a bunch of lesser ones that really didn't matter before you got to the one that you really needed not to break. So they called them hedges. We talk about this sometimes. <laughs> Why don't Baptists allow premarital sex? Because it leads to dancing. Okay, so the dancing is a hedge against the big one, don't have premarital sex. But dancing can lead to that. But what happens is the dancing becomes as important or more important than the law that it was trying to protect. And that becomes the big cultural bugaboo, the thing that everybody is focused on. Dancing had nothing to do with it. It was just, hey, red flag, as you start to go in this direction, it could lead you to something much worse. But then dancing becomes the end-all and the be-all. This is exactly what was going on with the Pharisees. They had, in the written law, the people were enjoined to take care of their father and mother. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. That meant that you took care of them, especially in their old age. You provided for them. You watched over them. You, you cared for them. Of course, you lived in the same house. That was a, a written command. They had an oral tradition called korban, which meant that a person could take part of their increase, part of their finances, and dedicate them to God, right? And you would be seen as a righteous person if you did that. So what the people were doing was taking that portion of their finances that should have gone to mom and dad and called it korban and got the social pop for putting all that money in, but now they didn't have money for mom and dad. Do you see how that works? How that's related to dancing? This is the kind of thing that the Pharisees were pulling off by using their oral traditions in place of the laws. How bad was it? Let me read you just a couple of paragraphs. And this is from the fifth way. This is from my book. But it's trying to get a handle around how nuts it was for these poor people living in first century Judea and Galilee to follow the oral tradition and the written tradition of the Pharisees. Exodus 35, verses 2 to 3. For six days... Work may be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a holy day, a Sabbath, of complete rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Okay, pretty tough. You shall not kindle a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day, and that's it. That's all it says. Can't do any work, servile work, whatever that means, and that's a problem, right? And you can't kindle a fire. So we know you can't kindle a fire. You know, today there are Jews who put what are they, motion detectors on all their light switches? So on Sabbath, they don't have to flip a light switch on because that would be kindling a fire. They're still following these traditions to this day. So now we also know that kindling a fire is included under servile work that must be not be done on the Sabbath. And we know that death was the official punishment for violation, though it was rarely carried out even in ancient times. When it comes right down to it, what constitutes work? Can I take a walk? 
without breaking the Sabbath? Can my children play? Can we prepare a meal without fire? Or what if the fire is still burning from the day before? Can I use it? Can I read? Carry a book from shelf to chair? Can I write? Can I deal with an emergency such as a broken bone or a hole in the roof? Can I care for my sick child? Once the letter of the law has been separated from the spirit or the intent of the law, there is no end to the legal questions and permutations and interpretations that arise. The intent of the Sabbath law was simple, to provide a time of rest and refreshment, rededication to God and his purpose. The application of the letter of the law became a nightmare as rabbis of the Pharisaic tradition labored to define just what servile work entailed. The rabbis eventually delineated 39 hedges around the Sabbath law. These are 39 categories of activities that would be prohibited on Shabbat, the Sabbath. Now, these 39 categories prohibited work that was either creative or exercised dominion over the environment and were loosely divided into four groups, activities required to make bread, such as sowing, plowing, reaping, threshing, winnowing, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, activities required to make a garment, such as shearing, washing, beating, dyeing, spinning, weaving, two or more loops of threads, tying, untying, stitching, tearing, activities to make leather, trapping, slaughtering, flaying, tanning, scraping, cutting, marking, writing or erasing two or more letters, and activities required to build a house, building, demolishing, kindling, extinguishing fire, finishing, transporting objects more than four cubits, just a few feet. But as restrictive as these, as restrictive as these 39 may be, they were only categories of activities, each containing many more activities within them. So within each category, or malacha, there were direct derivative activities called toledot that carried nearly the same legal severity as the original malacha. Then there were also indirect derivative activities called shavut that carried much less severe punishments if violated. Now in this way, baking as malacha carried within it the prohibitions against cooking, poaching, and roasting, all toledot under baking. And even if you weren't making bread, there wasn't much else you could do in the kitchen either on Shabbat, so meals needed to be prepared the day before. And since winnowing, as melacha, referred to separating chaff from grain or making something edible, which was previously inedible, it was also unlawful to filter undrinkable water to make it drinkable or to pick small bones from fish. Why do you think they have gefilte fish? No bones. Or at least you can eat the bones, because you can't do that. From one commandment, to 39 melacha, to dozens of toledot, to dozens more shavut, restrictions exponentially grew. And keeping in mind that the Sabbath commandment was only one of 613 laws the rabbis recognized starts to bring the incredibly vast scope of the oral tradition into view. You see what's going on here? Do you see how absolutely ridiculous it is? But it's like a frog put in cold water and slowly heated up over two centuries. It's just the culture you live in. As a child, you, you are just brought into this culture. And so it's just the air you breathe. It's the way things are. You don't question it anymore. But Jesus does. Jesus is saying, this is nuts. The emperor has no clothes. Are you kidding me? Come on, people. You've got to take a look at this. Look at what is happening. Do you know that 
You couldn't set a broken bone on the Sabbath. You couldn't pour cold water on a dislocated hand and foot. But the rabbi said, you can wash it in the usual way, and if it heals, it heals. You've got to say that with a Yiddish accent. It just works that way. If it heals, it heals. Jesus is saying, keeping law means fulfilling the purpose, the intent of the law, not following rules. We have to get the difference. And I did a paraphrase of Matthew 5.20, which became our main scripture. You know, right now it's First uh, John 4.19. We love because he loved first, first loved us. But Matthew 5.20 was our central scripture for many years. It's not as romantic as the other one, but... Uh, for I say to you in NESB that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. How about this? When you see the purpose of the law as one with God's desire and one with the same and one and the same with your desire within, when you begin to fulfill the purpose of the law and not just follow rules, when you value others more than yourself, when you see God in every breath, face, and moment, you are already kingdom by definition and not an instant before. Law is not an absolute instrument for Jesus or for Paul. It is not the test of our acceptability to God. God forbid. And as long as we think this way, the kingdom remains out of reach because it remains fear-based. Law is not as we understand it from Jesus and Paul. Law is not a legal bludgeon. It's more like the pirate code, right? It's more like guidelines, you know. But it's like a hand on the small of your back, guiding you, showing you which way to go, showing you how to go this way so that you don't get hurt. It's not the way we typically think of law. Chuang Tzu, the, the famous Taoist, the famous uh, Chinese philosopher of the 2nd, 3rd century B.C., wrote beautifully when he wrote, you know, the purpose of a fish trap is to catch a fish. Once the fish is caught, the trap is forgotten. The purpose of a rabbit snare is to catch a rabbit. Once the rabbit is caught, the snare is forgotten. The purpose of words is to convey ideas. Once the ideas are understood, the words are forgotten. Where can I find a man who has forgotten words? He's one I would like to talk to. I love that. Well, the purpose of law is to capture God's righteousness, understood as his deepest purpose, his desire, his delight, his will, right? Everything that he does, everything that animates him. And once that righteousness is captured, once it's internalized, once it's become a part of who we are, then the law can be forgotten. Where can we find someone who has forgotten law? That's someone I would like to obey. That's someone I want to follow. This is where Jesus is trying to take us, get us to understand what this is all about. Mahatma Gandhi said, justice that law gives, I'm sorry, justice that love gives, justice that love gives is surrender. Justice that law gives is punishment. This is the difference between the two. When love becomes our law, surrender is our justice. It makes all the difference. Remember 1 John 4.18. 
right, the verse right before, that one that's our signature verse now. There's no fear in love, John says, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. When we treat law as we understand law, we are living in fear because it's all about punishment. Law doesn't mean anything without punishment. But Jesus is saying it's a whole different fundamental shift that we need to make here, and everything changes. Love is the law. Law, like the Beatitudes, is the picture of the kingdom person, the person who has absorbed, has assimilated the intent of the law, someone who has begun to love God and love neighbor and is constantly aware of the connection of God and others in every moment, has become relational and not legal, until heaven and earth pass away, cross boundaries, become one, first in our own hearts, because this happens individually first, that we get to the place where everything has become one inside us. We see things in terms of unity, not dualistically anymore. And then, moving outward into our communities. The law is needed until that moment. Only until the moment heaven and earth pass away, cross boundaries, become one, see the oneness and diversity, is the law necessary. And the law itself, the purpose of the law, is to train us to make heaven and earth pass away in our hearts and in our communities to become one and the same. And when we have reached that unitive thinking, there is no more law. Don't need the law anymore. It's fulfilled in our hearts. Or as Deuteronomy says, it has become written on our hearts. And what does that look like? Well, I don't think Jesus paints any more beautiful picture of what this law as love looks like than the father of the prodigal son. That father, whose son committed a capital offense, insulted him in such a way, took resources out of his family in such a way that he should have been stoned, he should have been killed. And not only does he acquiesce to his request, he watches for him every single day until he comes back and doesn't listen to an apology, doesn't get amends, doesn't get reparation, doesn't care about any of that but drapes himself around his stinking son's neck and cannot stop kissing him and throws a party. When we understand love the way Jesus understands love, then we can throw a party in the same way. Everything will have changed. Everything will look like perfect love to us the same way it does to our Father because love is the law. Let's pray. Father, you are love. It's so hard for us to get our minds around that. It's so hard for us to keep our minds around that. Thanks for the flashes that we get, the illuminations, the epiphanies that show us your nature clearly for a moment as if illuminated by lightning but how fast that fades, and we move right back into our legal understanding. We move right back into our fear. We get right back on the hamster wheel again and start pounding away as if it makes any difference. Help us to bathe in this, Lord. 
immerse in this. Help us to ingest this in such a way that it becomes so much a part of who we are that we carry it around with us wherever we go to all our moments. And we start experiencing our moments as kingdom moments. We start realizing that you are there with us and for us and through us in everything we do. And we can leave the letter of the law behind as we ourselves fulfill it in our relationships and in our love for you and everyone we meet. That's what we do want, Father. You know our frailty. You know our fears. Help us to overcome them day by day. Get stronger and stronger and closer and closer to who you are. And thanks for loving us, Lord. Never let us forget we can only do any of this because you did it first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen? Let's all stand.